This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Dan Sean, author of You Remind Me of Me, Await Your Reply, Fitting Ends, and Stay Awake. His novel, Among the Missing, was a finalist for the National Book Award. His new novel, Ill Will, tells the tale of two unsolved crimes, one in present day and one in the 80s. At the center of his novel is Dustin, a psychologist whose parents were murdered in one of the unsolved crimes. Told in alternating points of view and focusing on issues of memory, trauma, self-deception, and grief, Ill Will revisits Dustin's past and investigates his present and how the violence in his life haunts him in obvious and mysterious ways. We began the interview with Dan Sean talking about his obsessions and what questions led him to start writing Ill Will. I've always been interested in the way our our brains work the way our imaginations work, the, the stories that we tell about ourselves that kind of form our identities and how those are, you know, constructions, they're narrative constructions. I, uh, I lost my wife eight years ago to cancer. And um, I was thinking a lot about how grief uh, distorts and, and transforms people. And I didn't want to write an autobiographical book. So I ended up trying to, trying to, fit a lot of that stuff into a form that I was really enamored of, which is the thriller form um, and the, you know, um, psychological suspense form. And, you know, using that as a way to kind of talk about these things that were important to me while not trying, well, trying to avoid talking autobiographically, which I, you know, succeeded and failed at both. One of the things that was interesting to me was the idea of the legacy of violence. Like, do we inherit that when we experience that, that the main character is Dustin, who had an adopted brother, and as he grew up, he, you know, there was more violence in his life. Do you think that violence is something you you inherit? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's learned, um, and it colonizes you in, in a way at a very early age. And I think that that, that, you know, that that stuff marks people and it's very difficult to, to consciously get away from, you know, the, the book, the book plays around with this, you know, with this repressed memory stuff. And a lot of that is bunk. Um, but I do think that we spend a lot of time not thinking about things that disturb us. And we spend a lot of energy to not think about those things. So Dustin, he's traumatized in many ways. When his parents adopt Rusty, his brother, his brother is cruel to him and abusive to him. He's very, I would say he's a very porous character and absorbs things and changes his reality, as well as then his parents die and he sees the crime scene. So do you think that kind of trauma carries through you? Like, do you think you can escape that? No, I don't. But I think there there are different ways to deal with it. I think that the that people that are are most that have the most difficulties in are the people that are unwilling to think about things and work through things and talk about them. I have this quote in in the book um, by Jung, and it's and I'm, I'm going to read it to you. It's Unfortunately, there can be no doubt that man is on the whole less good than he imagines himself or wants to be. 
Everyone carries a shadow. And the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. And I think that's, that's a really good encapsulation of what I think about trauma, is that the, 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 the deeper it's buried, the more dangerous it is. So what do you think the role of memory is? Because obviously he, he lives with this child trauma but he can also you, we can also mold our memories. So and I feel like your book was exploring the role of memory and is it reliable? Um, can we remember things by suggestion from other people? So I'm wondering if you could just talk about your interest in memory and its role in the novel. All novelists are interested in memory um, because so much of what we're drawing from is based in that in in. in conscious and unconscious memories. And I'm thinking of the things that um, we don't, that aren't part of our, you know, like the, the rote story that we tell ourselves or the, or, the, or the autobiographical details that we tell other people, but the things that come up just based on some sort of little trigger that you might not have ever thought about, before, you know, again, right? Like you pass somebody who suddenly reminds you of a girl that, you knew in second grade, or, you know, there's an apple tree that, and the shape reminds you of something that you saw when you were five. And, you know, those things are just, they, they just emerge out of, out of almost nowhere out of the ether. We have an infinity of them in our heads, but how do you access them? I mean, and that's, that's really interesting to me. Um, and finding ways to, 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 to trigger those things that I, I wouldn't have thought of before, um, I think that's a big part of writing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dan Sean, author of the novel Ill Will. I'm curious about how you were interested in the suggestibility of his memory and that when people told him things when he was a child or later in life, he sort of seemed to arc around it as if it was his own, but sometimes the reader knew it wasn't his own. And was this something, like, why did you create that role in him? And do you think he was conscious of it at all? I think that that became a bigger part of the, of, of his character as I did more research into dissociative personality disorder and satanic ritual abuse which are both sort of big parts of the novels, the novel's history anyway, in that it, you know, sort of goes back to the time of the satanic panic in the 80s. And um, that's a big plot part. But anyway, as I was reading about that, I was also reading about, um, you know, the huge debate about repressed memory that went on um, in the 90s, um, the huge debate about um, multiple personality disorder, whether it existed and, you know, dissociative personality disorder and all of these things. And I was like, it would be really cool to kind of give this kid um, those kinds of qualities. Cause I, you know, partially I was, I was also, you know, looking at these, at these cases where, um, you know, children were indu in, induced to um, testify in these really out of these really outrageous things. Um, I mean, and you know, there's a there's a whole whole a whole bunch of them. And I was trying to think, like, okay, how would I get a kid um, to believe that you know he had seen these really outrageous things? 
and what kind of kid would that have to be? And that's and that's sort of how I started to form Dustin, that backstory of Dustin's, because it he was one of those kids that testified to outrageous things that only during that very specific time period people would have believed. With Dustin, I'm just curious about your your take on him as a character. I thought he was generally very meek and very suggestible. You know, obviously very impressionable and. Um, what was it like spending all these years with him? And and it, it you don't have to like him, but what were your feelings about him? Well, I started out, you know, thinking that he was a you know basically uh, a decent guy. Um, and then the more I got to know him, the more I I found him kind of alarming. There was a point. It kind of later in the book, my both of my sons were reading it as I was writing it, so they were giving me feedback. And one of my sons said, "You know who the most dangerous person in the in the book is? Dustin." And I was like, "Oh, really?" <laughs> and then I kind of was like, "Yeah, he's right, because he's the he's the person that has all this stuff that's bundled up." That, that, that I guess I guess that was the other thing with that um, that young quote that that seems to me to describe Dustin. Well, like his son had stuff, but his son was on heroin, so he was finding his own way to escape. That was a different experience writing that kid. I really uh, ended up liking him a lot, so you know, and 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 really sympathizing with him in a way that I wasn't. I mean, I, I think he was kind of started out as a kind of one-off, you know, slacker, um, stoner type guy, and then you know, he just developed depth. And it, it, it was, it's interesting that my, my feelings about him became warmer while my feelings about Dustin became colder as the book went on. Well, Dustin also, I mean, talking about escapism, he, he specialized in hypnosis therapy. Yeah. Well, um, I was, I was fascinated by hypnosis as a kid and I don't know, I think it might've been you know, like a Scooby-Doo episode or something um, where there was where there was like an evil clown that was also a hypnotist. Um, and I was just, I just thought it was so, so cool. And then a, a hypnotist came to our school and, um, you know, made kids do all these wacky things in, in, in you know, in the um, in a big auditorium. Um, and I was just like, wow, that's amazing. And then I and then I read all these books that were about um, people being hypnotized and discovering their past lives. And I, I was, of course, very attracted to the idea that I had had some kind of fantastic past life. Um, it turns out that I have not ever been able to be successfully hypnotized. And that's disappointing. I would like to eventually get to the point where I could successfully hypnotize others, though. When you're talking about hypnosis, is that partly, though, what you do as a writer? Yeah, I mean, and I think maybe that's that's part of my fascination with it is that is that, you know, when you're when you're writing fiction, you're in this state of deep play. And it's it's something that we do, but we don't. all. But I think everybody does it. It's often sort of a repressed thing. And I, I like the, you know, like really being able to go down a rabbit hole, really being able to exist in another life for a, a long period of time really being able to sort of imagine a, a, a world and a mood and, and building something that's like those, those dioramas that you used to make when you were five and they went on for, for a week 
you know, with different stuffed animals in different configurations. You know what I'm talking about. I, I guess what I was saying is that all of us do it in a, in a, in a way. I mean, we all we all go into that mode, and you know, it's it's like okay, you 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 see somebody on the bus and they're wearing a weird hat, and you're like, why are they wearing that hat? And then you start imagining like where they're going and how people will react when they see them. And, you know, so you've gone into this little fictional play place for a while. But I, I think a lot of I think, you know, for a lot of people, that's just daydreaming. And for me, it's like kind of the heart of what I'm of, of, of how I spend my time. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dan Sean, author of the novel Ill Will. So for you, how would you describe the role of sub- of the subconscious in your writing? Well, I I pretty much rely on it because I, I don't write with an outline at all. And so I have to rely on this nonverbal part of myself to, to finish and to tell me what happens next, and and, and you know, surprisingly, it it, it mostly works. Um, like you know, you get to a, you, you get to a place that you didn't know you were going to get to, and suddenly the road is open a little bit more. I mean, it's sort of like you know, you're um, you're driving at night, and your headlights illuminate a certain amount of the road. You can't see much beyond that, um, but it's not like the road disappears. It's still it's still gonna going to show up. And so that's my subconscious. I didn't outline or, or even know what was going to happen in this book when I started it, um, but it somehow managed to happen. And that's, I think that's super cool. So it sounded like part of your interest that started this was researching satanic ritual in the 80s. Can you talk about why that fascinated you and maybe what you learned from your research that took you um, maybe from believing one thing to another. I remember it happening. I was I I, I was a teenager in the through most of the eighties, um, and I remember like all, all the like this Geraldo Rivera special about um, you know how there are Satanists in every in every small town. I remember it being talked about in um, in church. And, and police task forces about it and all these news stories about, you know, satanic rituals, although, you know, it became so elaborate um, that eventually I think people were just like, this can't be real. It's too, it, it, I mean, it just is too unbelievable. And I think eventually, you know, it's, it, it, it's, there are very few of, of these kinds of satanic ritual type things. And they're, you know, they're, they're not organized in any sort of long-term way. The thing that interested me the most was a, was the idea of hysteria and the willingness to believe things that didn't seem possible because everybody said that they were true. The sort of complete disavowal of critical thinking on this one particular subject, it, you know, it's just like something that you, you're not allowed to question. This is real. And... I think that's a really interesting aspect of, I guess, most cultures, but in particular, because I know American life, it's it's an interesting aspect of American life. And it's it's happened to us over and over and over, starting with the Salem witch trials. So in your book, you have this scene where you have Dustin and the twins 
So they're um, both their parents are brother and sister. So it's two brothers that marry two sisters. So it's Dustin and his cousins and then Rusty. And they have this scene at a cemetery with one other girl that's there. And that's sort of a, maybe the embodiment of the satanic ritual in your story. Can you talk <laughs> about writing that? I, I had read a, a, a number of things about heavy metal and teenage satanic cult practices. I mean, you know, and sort of like the goth, and sort of goth culture. And then I was just sort of going back and imagining what it might have been like to be drunk and stoned and just goofing on this idea of a ritual. I mean, I my sense is that, you know, a, a lot of these kids that got that got into like satanic heavy metal or death metal or whatever just thought it was kind of funny and cool and weren't like like religiously inspired by satan so i i, I mean i was i was really thinking that, that 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 whole event was a goof what was rusty's culture you know he's the boy that who is adopted and i i know <laughs> that you are adopted so that that's something that really interests you but he comes into this family after he's had trauma. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about creating Rusty's character and what he meant for you and what he meant in this family. He comes from a really, I mean, he's been foster, he's been in the foster care system for a long time. Um, and he, he's bounced around through a, a number of different families. And so by the time he gets to Dustin's family and is adopted, He's pretty deeply damaged and acts out. He's very good at at masking a lot of the damage, but you know they don't really think too carefully about what kind of person they've adopted. And I think that's a, that's a problem. Again, it's a question of do you face it, or and and do you and do you and do you talk about it, and do you think about it, or do you just pretend? That it's that that hey now you're our son everything's cool, and hope that it all turns out all right. And I think that was definitely a problem. I mean that kid had been in you know foster homes and um, you know like juvenile detention facilities, and I just wouldn't have have probably left him alone with Dustin all that often. So his parents were maybe a little bit. Well, not only naive, because his dad was really the one that wanted to do this good thing and felt like they should, but they also seemed to sort of just be like that good deed in itself was enough and they didn't really maybe go on to parent these kids. You know, it's interesting to me, just knowing a little bit about the foster care system, there are, are, are great foster parents, but there are also a lot of foster parents that are, you know, pretty close to a, a difficult, hard life themselves. So, you know, I mean, often, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're bringing in foster kids, but they've got plenty of problems going on all around them. And I think that's sort of the case here. So being adopted, what, mm -hmm. what do you think when people imagine adoption as a, quote, good deed? I think about the song, How Much Is That Doggy in the Window?, I have lots of weird things said to me about adoption. One of them was actually a, a friend of mine. <laughs> they were, you know, they 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 spent so much money on um, fertility treatments and stuff. And um, I said something like, "Well, you know, you could consider adoption." And he's like, "Well, yeah, but you don't know what you're gonna get." <laughs> that made me catch my breath 
I guess it's true. You don't. But there is this idea that, you know, if you're going to adopt, you should be able to, um, you know, sort of shop, shop around a little bit and, and get the and get the best deal for your money. I feel like there's a there's there's a little bit too much shopping that goes on with with the adoption industry as it's as it's been built in the United States. That's not always true, but I think there's a little there's 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 a, there's a little bit of it and it's a little problematic. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dan Sean, author of the novel Ill Will. You were mentioning earlier that you grew up in Nebraska and I read that you grew up in a village of 20 people. I mean, uh-huh. that must have really served your imagination because it was probably a little bit boring. I don't think it was ever boring. There was just too much craziness going on, but it was definitely lonely. You know, there weren't a lot of other kids. And so I did spend a lot of time in my own head and playing pretend and walking around in the prairie by myself with my dogs and, you know, making up stories and stuff. It's it's a really weird thing to have experienced because you know I mean it was st- it was still in a in in almost a different century at, at you know like there were people that had outhouses and you know I I went to a country school that had a coal burning furnace so you know there'd be actually people shoveling coal into a furnace I mean that like crazy things that I'm glad that I experienced that I you know that, hey, I've, I've uh, been in an outhouse and I've been on the internet. This story you told in multiple points of view. Some is third person, some is first person, and you change, you know, the different characters. Did you start out writing it that way? And I'm, I'm assuming that you felt like the story absolutely necessitated that structure. And how was your experience of writing it? I did sort of once once I decided that it was going to be a novel and I had a, I had sort of an idea of what the direction of the novel was like the, the kind of almost the next step was saying okay I want it to be in 11 parts and I want you know the main characters to all talk in in you know you know in one chapter or another and that was in part because I knew that it was going to be a book about memory and unreliability and I wanted to have multiple perspectives so that I could tell stories from multiple angles. Tell me about the title. You know, it's weird. I don't remember where it came from, but I know it came really early. Like even like at the very beginning stages of, you know, taking notes and it just felt right to me. There was some debate kind of later on where people were saying, well, is it a selling title? It rhymes. Will people think it's about someone named William who's sick? But I just couldn't ever think of it as anything but this title. And I'm sad that I don't remember why, but maybe that's, again, that subconscious thing that we're not, we're not supposed to be able to access. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dan Sean, author of the novel Ill Will. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is somebody that I read when I was 13, and um, I have loved her ever since. Her name is Shirley Jackson, and I'm going to read the first paragraph of The Haunting of Hill House. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, 
not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, brick met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. So tell me why you picked that. It was one of those passages that, for whatever reason, just got my heart racing when I was a kid. And I, I mean, partially because it's so beautiful, but also because it's so sinister in this very measured way. And that combination just really tripped me out when I, you know, and I, and I still, I still think it's just a beautiful passage. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, I'm going to read just a little passage, I guess, maybe in part because it feels like it's, it's my, it's, it's, it's a kind of callback to the sort of, to the sort of prose that Shirley Jackson was writing, or at least it's, uh, it's got a, it's got a little bit of her finger in it. All right. So this is from the chapter called July, 2012. There are the shadows of birds or airplanes that pass over in a blink. There is the fermata hum coming from somewhere, maybe 50 yards in the distance. There is the vague smell of batteries and lightning. There is the sound of a screaming baby one night, and you go out on the back porch, and you see the neighbor's cat has a baby rabbit in its mouth, and the scream is repulsively human. Hey, you yell at the cat, and it drops the rabbit, and they both run off in different directions, and you are left alone with the sudden feeling of being regarded with disapproval, as if you'd interrupted an important religious ritual. You can feel across your back, across your face, there is a presence that doesn't like you. So tell me why you chose that. I guess we talked a lot about um, ill will emanating from people, and I think that it definitely does, but I think that it also emanates in this book from something outside in, so, in some ways, or at least it's perceived as emanating from something outside. Um, and I feel like that's a really important part of the texture of the book is that sense of dread or that sense of menace and not really knowing where exactly it's located. Where do you write? I have a, a, a third floor attic. I've just recently had it remodeled. The the nasty old carpet is gone. It's now hardwood. All the moldings and stuff got redone, and that's really cool. And I've got a big old desk that's built from um, barn wood, so it's and it's real old wood, and it goes the length of the wall. So I have a lot of what places to pile stuff. I make piles. What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? I'm a gamer. And, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm working on a, on a project, I often have to entice myself to work to actually write, um, by, you know, creating little rewards or punishments for myself. And one of the rewards has been, okay, if you, if you write for, for three hours, then you can play video games for an hour. And I have spent a lot of time in recently in post-apocalyptic Boston of Fallout 4. So that, that's one place I, I, I go. Do you have to set a timer to make sure you stop at an hour? 
I do. And sometimes I, I, I actually can't make myself stop, but most of the time I'm okay. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Well, for, for this book, and this is, this is sort of an interesting change in my life, I guess. Both my sons are, are now, you know, in their 20s, and they were my first readers. I mean, this is the, the first book I have finished uh, without my late wife's input. And it felt, I don't know, somehow really good and important to me that my sons were, were somehow participating in the process a little bit. And it, they helped me a lot, especially with, um, you know, with, with those, uh, with those errand sections. How have you dealt with rejection? I guess it, I mean, it, it, it's always hard. Um, and you know, you always long for things that you don't get, but as I've gotten older, it's become easier not to care what, uh, you know, like what other people think, um, or just to care about uh, what a certain group of people that you respect think. Not everybody is going to like this flavor of ice cream and it's not their fault. They just don't like it. Um, and I've come to, I've come to accept that I'm not one of the three main flavors. I'm not chocolate. I'm not vanilla and I'm not strawberry. I'm something like, you know, pistachio butterscotch. And you know, what am I going to do about that? I can't, I can't change my flavor. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> Well, right now it's um, shoot. I had it down, and I now I, and I lost it. It's gone. But there was a word that I I, I used in this book. Like it, it's a weird word, and I used it like fifteen times until my editor was like, "What's up with that?" Later, the night of the interview, Dan Sean emailed me his favorite word, which was ruefully. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Dan Sean, author of the novel Ill Will. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.